Well, a young man was appointed president of a bank, and he was intimidated by his new responsibilities. So he nervously asked a gray-haired predecessor. He said, sir, what has been the secret of your success? And the secret, the old man said to the younger one, is in two words, right decisions. Well, how do you make right decisions? One word, experience. Well, how do I get experience? Two words, wrong decisions. Listen, the early church made some wrong decisions. And whether it's in the family, whether it's in a job, or whether it's in a church, may God give us strength to be humble enough to recognize those things and courageous enough to do something about it. Godly parents, good leaders, good employees, that's all that you can ask, right? Recognize the mistakes, be humble enough to admit those things, and in God's strength, improve in those areas. This is exactly what took place here in Acts chapter 6. Let's all stand as we take a look at it. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius. Hey, you can't do any better, so don't be laughing, all right? And Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Father, as we gather together and as we listen to your word, it's easy for a lot of people just to tune out for various and asunder reasons. But through the supernatural power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to just focus in, to have our hearts have razor focus on what it is that you're saying to each of us. And that, Lord, you might speak to each and every heart especially for things that are, that are personal, that are deep, that you would bring about transformation as only you can. That's what we pray for. Thank you for your word that we can have confidence in. Thank you for your spirit that takes your word. And thank you that you indwell us, that you give us the power to make the changes that are necessary. So we invite you to continue to do your awesome and holy work in each of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Organic cells. That's not news to you. Organic cells. From food to makeup, the desire 
to dress up the body with the promise of untainted resources has reached now a $50 billion industry in the U.S. And organic spirituality is also on the rise. What do we mean by that? More and more people become disenchanted with the church. And the more that this happens, there's a rally cry for what's organic or authenticity, relationship-oriented ministry. I think most of us can appreciate that sentiment, except when it's put in a nothing or all framework. It's either all organic or it's not worth salvaging. And so the enemy becomes tradition and organization and big churches, while the goal is to be free of religious institutions. And the not-so-subtle inference is that if there's any structure, especially a kind that calls us to account or responsibility, then you're opting for what is fleshly and fake. Sociologist Phil Zuckerman expresses a sentiment that I think many Christians can relate to, fall into, however you look at it. This is what he says. Religions are man-made institutions, just like for-profit corporations are. And like any corporation, to survive and grow, a religion must find a way to build power and wealth and compete for market share, end quote. Now, I don't for a second think that religious institutions deserve a free pass and that there are some who never go for profit and numbers before people. But I do think that there is an unhealthy thinking when a growing number in the church see all organized faith communities as suspects. I think such thinking creates a, a false dichotomy of freedom and authenticity versus organized religion. Now, I've even heard faith leaders propagate the idea that we ought to get rid of all authoritative structures, you know, including any lead pastors or programs. And then they often follow, follow that up with some self-congratulatory phrases like, you know, we do it just like the early church. I mean, nothing like a blanket statement to spiritualize our thinking. By the way, our calling is not to copy the early church. Do we understand that? All right. There are a lot of things that we can emulate and appreciate, but it's just like any other church. They had their share of problems just like anybody else, and we can learn from them of the mistakes they made and the good things that they did. Now, we're not to refuse to look at the issues of any church, including our own, but I refuse to denigrate or give up on the body of Christ, the same one that Jesus loves and died for. So it's not an either-or proposition, at least I don't think in my mind. I mean, we've all had problems with jobs, but do we jump to the conclusion, therefore, I don't think I'm never going to work again. I had a problem with my job, really. And we've all had, those of us that are married, we've experienced trials, but is it not a little short-sighted to say, you know, marriage just doesn't work? I mean, if we're going to succeed in life, 
It demands that we learn to steer through the muddy waters of, of systems and organizations and institutions that are flawed while still maintaining authenticity and relationships and a sincere heart. It's why great marriages are hard and long-term jobs are rare. And by the way, as long as humans are involved, there's going to be sin, there's going to be issues to resolve, right? The church is an organism that requires organization. It requires structure. And here's a newsflash. The early church had structure, organization, and leadership, right? The early church wasn't just this small, merely organic thing. It had thousands of people in it. Do we understand this? And the first big problem was, Gary, can I get an amen? The first big problem was money. how to disperse it, how to handle it. And you know how the church responded? The church responded with a better structure, an improved organization. I once heard Chuck Swindoll say, the root of every division in a church comes down to ecclesiology. It's a fancy word for the theology of a a church or the organization. Now, in... These days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. This first phrase of this verse is not some minor incidental note, but I think it's critical to our understanding. The disciples were increasing in number. They went from a small group in an upper room to tens of thousands of Christians. Anybody who thinks that the structure, the organization is not important has never run anything bigger than a lemonade stand in their front yard. Because a church of 100 is far different than a church of 250, which is a lot different than a church of 1,000, which is a lot different than a church of 10,000, and it involves unique gifts to handle every one of those growth spurts, patterns, whatever you want to call it. Systems must change. Organizations have to adapt or else you severely hamper the health of the organization. And by the way, not everyone wants to adapt. Not everyone wants to change. The Harvard Business Review calls it the founder's dilemma. When early organizers of of an organization do not change with the growth, people become attached to a structure. They even get sentimental about it, particularly with the church, because, you know, I liked it way back when, you know, we had just 20 people or whatever. And it is well known that in any organization that those who were present at the inception often cannot last the duration of the organization long term. And perhaps maybe these early founders, they wielded, you know, more authority. But as it grows, they might feel like their voice is not heard like it once was. 
Information does not always travel through their fingers like it once did because of the size of the organization. And that doesn't always fit well with everyone. Some of it has to do with control, but I think most of it just has to do with gifting. The leadership gifts for a larger organization are more acute than those in a smaller organization where maybe you can get away with just running it like a mom-paw store. Now, I'm very thankful for our elders that were wise enough to go get outside help to help us counsel our church and how we can traffic through those changes that are necessary in order to be healthy. So, the church at Acts was growing, and that means it had to change. Systems had to be different than what they were previous. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Let's first deal with that word, complaint. It means exactly what you read it to mean. In the Greek, it means, guess what? Complaint, all right? It means to murmur, to even speak in hushed tones behind one's back, to quarrel. Luke doesn't sugarcoat this. The church was grumbling. Now, that means they didn't necessarily handle it well as a group. But what I love about this passage is that the leaders didn't stumble all over that and just concentrate, how come you guys aren't nicer? You know, you, you, you didn't get a smiley face on your note that you sent me. You just were, wrote this nasty note that we needed to change. They didn't get hung up on all of that. You know what they did? They, they didn't deal with the manner of the complaint. They dealt with the truth of the complaint and addressed it and fixed it. Now, that doesn't justify people who grumble, but it speaks to the maturity of the leaders to recognize the problem and deal with it. And listen, there is no such thing as a healthy church without complaints. There's no such thing as a church without complaints. There's no such thing as a healthy church without problems, right? And it's a myth to say that the early church was problem-free. It just wasn't. Healthy churches make sure that they address whatever the issues are and they maintain well-being. The Jerusalem Christian community had witnessed considerable growth and as a result, administrative problems developed. By the way, the Holy Spirit works just as much in the administrative things as he does in the time of a public worship service. I hope we can understand that. It seems like with today's church, and I'm, I'm talking about the, the church in mass, all right, that we relegate the spirit of God's work within, you know, 20 or 30 minutes of the singing portion of a worship service. You realize, don't you, that there are 168 hours a week. What is the Holy Spirit doing the other 167 hours? Let me suggest that he works just as much in the mundane activities, in the leadership decisions, in the operation of 
the ministries, in the relationships. Show me leaders and a congregation who are humbly seeking God Monday through Saturday as well, and I'll show you a place where the Holy Spirit is at work. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They're to be operating in our homes, on the job, and in the church. You know, I kind of have to laugh because I hear people, I've heard statements that, you know, in 30 years of being a pastor, you hear things. And one that I heard, we're just out of church of prayer. And I'm thinking, what? But what they meant was that you don't showcase people up on the stage to pray. You don't have people come and lay here and then lay hands on them. Well, listen, you don't see me making out with my wife on Sunday morning either, but that doesn't mean I don't make out with my wife, okay? I don't have to display every single thing on a Sunday morning of what we should be doing, right? We're a praying church. People pray all the time. Our individuals pray. I know we have different groups that pray. And for me, if you know me at all, you just know I don't like to showcase and parade that kind of stuff to show off, look at us, we're a praying church, all right? Just pray, okay? Just pray. It's what we ought to be doing. And we do, it's as natural as any other thing that we ought to be doing in the life of the church. It's not just to, to showcase something, right? When you go to work, do you know that the Holy Spirit is using you? You can, you can dedicate your job to Christ, bathe your decisions in prayer while you're at work. When you go to school, the Holy Spirit is using you, working in you to be an emissary of Christ's love. When you step foot in your home, you are not on vacation from your faith. The Holy Spirit fills you to operate in the roles that he's given you in your home. Sundays are not a showcase for just special people on a Sunday morning. But listen, it's primarily an equipping enterprise. Do we realize that? So that each of us can operate in our gifting throughout the week. That's why we meet together. If you are not strengthened and more equipped to go out and live the life that God has called you to live and using your gifts because of your attendance on Sunday morning, then we have failed. It's more than just a rah-rah time, come, go, raise your hand, great. We love that. Nothing wrong with that. But there's more than that. There is an equipping that takes place. Notice in Acts 6.1, the complaint was from the Hellenists against the Hebrews. The Hebrew widows were getting help and the Hellenists were not. Now, to understand the context of this, we have to go back to actually hundreds of years before this was written, when Israel was defeated by the Babylonians, about 600 years before this, in the Babylonian captivity. What happened is that the Jews had Jerusalem, basically was desecrated. Many of them fled into foreign lands. And then the Persians defeated the Babylonians. 
and the Jews were allowed to return. And you read then Ezra and Nehemiah who lead the charge in bringing back the religious life within Jerusalem and, and they, they rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And there were many Jews who returned to Jerusalem and then those who did return and their descendants later were intensely nationalistic, you know, yearning for the homeland. They were vigilant in their observance of the law and of Judaism. And they spoke mostly Hebrew. So many Jews returned, but others remained in foreign territories. And those Jews who lived outside of Jerusalem took on the language and the culture of that foreign land that they were in. And the foreign Jews are referred to in Acts as Hellenists. Hellenism is the spread of ancient Greek culture and ideals. So when our passage says the Hellenized Jews were not getting fed, these were the foreign Jewish Greek-speaking widows. And they likely would be viewed as less than the homeland Jews because of their history, language, and culture. Still Jewish, but different. Still Jewish, but separate. In fact, the foreigners even had their own uh, synagogues. You know, like even here in Springfield, you'll have Spanish church, Russian church, still Christian, but they're maintaining this, you know, nationalistic flavor. Paul reminds us in Galatians that in Christ Jesus, there is no Greek nor Jew. I'm not saying it's wrong to have the separate congregations, but ultimately, there is to be unity in the body of Christ. No distinction of Hebrew or Hellenists here. All are one in Christ. Unfortunately, that's usually just in word, but not actually in practice or in attitudes, not only there in the first century, but also here in America and in Springfield. People still bring within the body of Christ their kind of prejudicial thinking, I mean, listen, if unity were easy, it wouldn't be as much of a challenge as it is. But it is a challenge. It's not easy. All of us have brought in our previous thinking. And this thinking can sometimes get in the way of experiencing unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ who differ with us in a variety of ways. It could be racial. It could be Religious background, denominational, could be nationality. Um, it could be over even musical tastes where there's disunity. could be a snubbing of our nose towards those who are maybe above or below us in the economic strata. And now, political differences are threatening to divide churches like never before, at least in my lifetime, that I can remember. We could call these differences the tyranny of the either-or. You either align with me on these matters or there is no unity. And I don't think that's the way that we need to look at this. What it is, it's bringing our, our previous conditioning on top of the gospel. 
we are limiting our scope of the body of Christ. When Paramount, in our minds, is expecting others to affirm our loyalties. And these loyalties are inferior to the gospel. And so we miss the potent formula of authentic Christianity, and that's the both and. Can the the gospel truly unite believers who are different politically, denominationally, or racially? Yes, we're different, but we're also united. The gospel is not calling us into some monolithic organization where we all think alike on subordinate issues. And I include in that a lot of theological issues that Christians divide over or subcultural lifestyle issues that Christians divide over. The differences racially and nationally, they're certainly there. And you can't change those, but what you can change is your allegiance. You can change your attitudes. You know what I find? I'll speak for myself. Arrogance comes naturally. Okay? It's easy. It's easy to think less of somebody else because of some of these differences. Humility is hard work. It's hard. Festering an agenda, that comes easy. That's easy. Choosing unity, hmm, that's hard. It's hard to realize that I've put things above the gospel. Pet theological issues. I'm not talking about, you know, inerrancy of the word of God. I'm not talking about the divinity of Christ, salvation, Christ alone. Those things essential to the gospel. I'm talking about everything else. Of course, here in Springfield, you know, what do you have? You have tongues and, you know, a bunch of other things I could throw in there, but why even go down the list? That divide the body of Christ. Choosing unity is hard. Our ultimate allegiance is to the gospel and the citizens of the kingdom of God. And this experiment that we're doing in Christ's community is something that I hadn't experienced until before this, or until this. And that is that we're not going to camp on the secondary issues. We're going to try to keep focus on the things essential to the gospel. And we'll have people that maybe speak in tongues and those who don't. We'll have people that will have different eschatological views or study of prophetic themes. Whereas before in my experience, you couldn't have that. You had to all be on the same page. And if you weren't, you were out. And only those in agreed with this. And then you throw in, you know, all the subcultural behavioral things like, you know, movies, music, homeschool, all those other things. And you can see why it gets so fractured. And I think what, what God is calling us to is a unity that goes much deeper than those things. And not that you can't have a position on those, but that's not why we're united. That's not why we're united. So these Hellenized Jews, they came to Jerusalem for Passover. And remember, there are hundreds of thousands who come to Passover each year. And then the miracle of Pentecost happened. 
And there are thousands of these foreign Jews that come to Christ. And the church continues to grow. And by the way, there's about five years between Acts 1 and Acts 6. All right? And eventually there was an accumulation of tens of thousands of converts in those first five years. So these foreign Hellenized Jews did not want to miss out on how God was moving in the church. They didn't want to go back to their Judaism in, the, in their uh, homeland, their foreign homeland. And so you have these new converts, they entered the church, and it put considerable strain on the resources, especially the widows. And to make things worse is if you're a woman in the first century, you had little or no property and very little economic opportunity. And so as a result, our passage says that they were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, were these foreign Jews just being glossed over? Was it, you know, was it a a mistake or was it a willful prejudice? We don't know for sure, but I think it was probably both. But you know what? It doesn't really matter in this sense because you know why? Because the answer is the same. Change the system, meet the need. And that took leadership to do that. Now, there was already a system in place within Judaism. Uh, They had a system whereby they would have collectors that would go through the market and the private homes on Friday morning, and they gathered together a collection for the needy. Later in the day, when people gathered, these proceeds were distributed to those in need. And the fund from which this distribution was made was called the kupa, meaning basket similar to kind of what our benevolence team does with the benevolence fund. And apparently the early church just carried over that same practice into the body of Christ. But they were missing a whole segment of women that were getting overlooked. The Jews in the early church also operated on the principle that a widow's family ought to be the first line of defense in caring for that widow. Paul said in 1 Timothy 5.4, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. When I was in elementary school, grew up on 648 Bell Avenue in Elyria, Ohio, I'd walk about a mile to school, and during elementary school, both of my parents worked. My mom worked at J.C. Penney for about 15 years. My dad worked for the Fruhoff Company as a welder. And I would come home during lunch, but my parents weren't there, so they arranged for me to have lunch, usually frozen pizzas, which was, I mean, that was a delicacy, I thought, as a third grader. Um, with my next-door neighbor, Bev Ledgerd was her name. And she had a gr- her own mother who lived with her, elderly woman, and then a daughter who was a year or two younger than me. And so I got used to this grandmother being in their house, and then about 10 years later or so, uh, we took in one of our grandmothers into our family. It just seemed the thing to do. It seemed to be something that we did 
in the neighborhood, in the community, in our family. And as a child, I didn't question it because that was just seemed to be the culture, right? And for CCC, I want to recommend that we have a culture. We have a way in which we do things. I suppose some of that is good and maybe some of it that needs to change, but we have a culture. And the culture comes by a, a series, a tradition of, of, of decisions and behaviors. What I want us to set our sight to is improving, and I think we, we, we have made some great steps here, improving in our culture to reach those in need. And by the way, James 1 tells us that true religion is helping out who? The orphans and who else? The widows. Kids who are in need. Single parents in need. We can't help everybody, but we can be extravagant in our love. We can help those that come across our path, that are within our reach. Now, what I'm praying is that we as a church can be honest with ourselves about addressing those things that get in the way, the boundaries in our own head, the prejudice that may exist within our own hearts. I was so encouraged to hear in a meeting with some other pastors as we were kind of talking about how we can reach the city and addressing some of the needs within the school. And I heard a, a staff person from a large church acknowledge how they've made some mistakes and how they've gone about this. And I thought, you know, I love that spirit. I love that. Because how else are we going to improve? And, and, and this staff person was a learner, was acknowledging, obviously they had done some things wrong, but they wanted to improve, and we came together just praying for one another. But that's how we need to approach this. None of us here have it all down pat, but if our hearts are open, if we're humble, God can help us to improve so that we can create a culture that is just thriving and alive and generous and showing extravagant love, especially to those who are in need. We got through one verse today. We'll cover the rest of it uh, here in the uh, weeks ahead uh, through verse 7. And um, may God bless his word. Let's pray.